Tonight's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lindsay. So this summer, we are walking through a sermon series entitled, I Believe. And we're learning based on the Apostles' Creed. It's a historic creed that the church has been using for centuries. Uh, Bobby's going to put the creed up there right now in just a moment. And I want to invite you, if you are agreeing with the words that are on the screen, to say this with me out loud. I know it might seem weird in church to talk when others are just sitting around you, but if this is your belief, please say it with me. Bobby, go ahead and put it up there. Um, Together we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we come to the phrase... And on the third day, he rose. As I was preparing for this sermon, it felt a little bit like Easter or maybe Good Friday and leading up to it because I'm going to preach a sermon on resurrection. As Christians, you know, there's really only one sermon to preach. There's only one Sunday to have. It's all about the resurrection, right? Uh, last week, Pastor Daniel talked about the, verses, the, the passage right before that, which is where Christ is crucified. And he ended that sermon, like all good sermons end, with the resurrection. But the, you're left hanging on a cliff if we stop there in the creed. Jesus was crucified. And today, we're going to look at what it means to believe that he was raised from the dead. What type of belief system relies on some crazy, miraculous event Everything hinges on it. 
Um, so last week we learned that the death of Christ has many implications on our life. If you, if you listen to the songs that we sing, the death of Christ is throughout it. How the death of Christ humbles us. How the death of Christ, def- it defeated, right? There was power in the cross. We wear them on our necklace. You'll see them inscribed all over this beautiful sanctuary. The cross is powerful. But as Jesus lay alone in the grave without the presence of the Father who had forsaken him on the cross, he is without hope. As the creed just said, he descended to the dead. He physically died. And because of our need to be united with him, to have any hope at all, our hope is gone in this moment too. We have no hope. There's no way that we could ever have intimacy with God as Jesus lay dead in the grave. Paul, in his letter to uh, the church at Rome, the book of Romans, which is what Lindsay just read for us from chapter 8, says it like this. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Emphasizing again the death. But if you follow closely, he takes a little bit of a change in direction. He's proving that because Christ died, we can have power for some things. And then he transitions. And listen to what he says. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, though, he was raised. The the cross accomplished things. But more than that, Jesus was raised from the dead. The cross leaves us in an amount, a certain amount of despair. (laughs) It leaves Jesus in the grave. It leaves humanity hopeless in its sin. So without the more than that, he arose. There's no hope. There's certainly no victory, which is the big idea tonight, right? That the resurrection is what gives us victory. So if you're anything like Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors, you know that without victory, you are defeated, right? When your team loses, you have been defeated. You have no victory. This is how Christ is in the grave, without victory. Tonight, I want to talk about the victory. So Daniel got the bad news last week. I get the good news this week. Dying was courageous. Um, Daniel um, even talked about it last week. Uh, It's been said that the greatest act of love in all of human history was not that Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't that they hammered the nails and he was thinking of us. The greatest act of love in all of human history was that Jesus stayed there on the cross when they ridiculed him and they said, if you're so powerful, come down. He was powerful enough. He could have come down. But he loved us so much that he stayed on the cross. He stayed there. He bore the full weight of sin and finally death. That was how he showed his love for us. It was valiant, right? It teaches us that Jesus is powerful, that he's willing and ready to go into battle, to do whatever it took to reconcile humanity to the almighty creator, almighty creator God, who we spoke about a few weeks ago. Jesus Christ would have to be raised from the dead, though, to prove anything. To prove the prophecies from the Old Testament true, he had to be raised. To highlight God's 
true omnipotence over all of creation, he had to be raised. Nothing in salvation is accomplished without the resurrection. It hinges on whether or not the stone was was rolled away and the garments were left flat. That's what it hinges on. That victory is the only victory that matters. Um, Paul knew this as well. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, not only according to the Scriptures, though, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then finally, he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. Paul, confirming the thing that had been suspected by the people in Corinth, Yes, Christ really raised from the dead. How do we know, Paul? The scriptures write about it. That's not enough. Cephas saw him. That's not enough. 500 people saw him at once. That's not enough. He goes on and on, reminding these very early believers that what had happened was true. The grave was not the end, it was just the beginning. The resurrection had occurred. So tonight we'll go back to that passage in Romans. And I want to highlight four implications, four demands even, that the resurrection makes on those who believe it. As we just read, I believe that he rose. So what does that mean, that you believe that? We'll talk about that tonight. Um, If you have been saved, if you've been born again, if you are trusting in God, believing in the resurrection for your salvation. These are four things that you should think of when you hear or when you recite that line. On the third day, he rose again. These four things are who you are if you believe in the resurrection. So much of our culture yearns for identity. Where do I find my identity? we tend to get hung up on very external things for our identity. These four things can help you define your identity if you're trusting and believing in the resurrection. The first is this. God is for you. God is for you. Listen to, uh, again to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who could be against us? Prove it that God is for us. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, believe in the resurrection and know that God is for you. Listen, 
I would give up a lot of things for you, especially those of you who are here tonight that I know personally. I love you. You're my family here. Now more than ever, as, as I am tonight, a 30-year-old father of three, husband of one, homeless man in New York City because he moved out of our apartment and not into our new place yet. So my family is in Texas with grandparents and I'm couch surfing. I asked my parents if they were proud of me for being a 30-year-old father of three, husband of one, homeless man and they said yes. And then they gave me a participation ribbon. Um, God is for you. That, that is never more clear than when you think of how God has moved his love for you into proof. Like I said, I love you. I would do a lot of things for you. But I would not give up any of my sons. And I have three. So I'm rich in the son category where God only had one. I have three. And I'm sorry, but chances are pretty great you wouldn't get one of them in exchange for God has proven to you and to me his love. He has proven that he is for us, not against us. How? By giving of his own son for you. And then Paul interprets that act. So Paul sees this. God gave Jesus. What does that mean? If he gave him, he'll give anything. He has given everything already. When you think in your mind or feel in your heart that you are alone or that there is no one for you, please, church, preach the gospel to yourself. God is for me. He has given of his own son. He who is in this world, or sorry, he who is in you, the apostle John tells us in another passage, is greater than he who is in the world. The one that is for you is greater than any of the others. How does the resurrection help me have victory? Because the one that is for you is greater than the one that is for anyone else. You have the almighty creator of heaven and earth, God, not just in your corner. He is in you. You know, the boxing term. You have, if you have a really great cut man and a really great coach in your corner, you're doing good. God is not in your corner, church. God is in you. He has come to dwell in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is for you. Know that God is for you. He delights to give you the good gifts, just as a father delights in giving good gifts to his children. God has given us what was closest to him to show us that he is on our side. He gave us what was closest to him to prove it. He, like Jesus, is willing to do whatever it takes to prove that you are valuable to him. He did not create you on accident. You were not a mistake. You are not just a blip on the radar screen of eternity, but you have purpose and worth. Your identity is found in knowing that God is for you. The second is that your accusers have been silenced. Don't you hate accusers? People who want to accuse you, especially unjustly, of things. 
Well, in the resurrection, we find that your accusers are silenced. Listen to verses 33 and following. Who shall bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Church, not only is God for you, but he has silenced your accusers. Listen to what uh, the psalmist says. Listen to how he describes um, something similar to this. In Psalm, in Psalm 40, verse 12 and following, the Bible says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. So unlike the lament that Angela read earlier, David now is lamenting his iniquity. He's not lamenting the violence of others, the injustice that's going on. He's talking about his iniquity, his depravity, his unrighteousness. He's saying, my iniquities have overtaken me so much so that I can't even see. It's almost like a picture of drowning or just pitch darkness. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. I almost want to put a a question mark in there. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me? But there's no question mark. The Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. The judges is the only accusation that holds any weight. What the judge says. Others can accuse you, right? But until the judge accuses you, there's no weight to their accusation. Here in our country, we know this is especially true, right? We're protected by the Constitution that proclaims that all people are innocent until proven guilty by a judge. Until there is no accusation that can condemn. At least there's not supposed to be. As we all know, and have seen clearly this week, and this year, and these years, that is not always the case for our black brothers and sisters. It's not always the case for other minorities. It's not always the case for those in poverty. It's not always the case. And that is an indication of a broken world trying to fix itself with a broken system. How does the resurrection give us victory? It silences 
the accusations. Church, the injustices that we see on a regular basis, they are not coincidence. These things shouldn't even confuse or bewilder us as Christians. We need to understand that what we have seen this week in particular, all of the violence, the hatred, the anger, the murders, the arguing on social and mass media, the blatant racism that still, after decades and centuries, divides our country and our hearts. And my heart is a result of sin. Jesus is the only hope for this injustice. The system cannot be fixed enough to fix the injustice. That is why we don't have to look with confusion or hopelessness. Because we know it's not going to work. If the system could fix all of the injustices, why would you be here tonight? Tonight? Why would you even want victory in the resurrection if the victory was given to you by the systems? If you could have perfect relationship with all people, if you didn't have prejudices in your heart, if you didn't have angers that you felt strange about when certain things happened, why, would, why are you here? Why do we need Jesus if there is already victory in all of these areas? It's because there's not There hasn't been, and there won't be, until Jesus returns and makes all things new. That is not meant to push your head, your chin, down into your chest. It feels like what I just did. Some of you, I can see it actually in your countenance that I just, it's not going to work. Just push people down. That's not the point. The point is to know that we are charged, church, Christian, believer in the resurrection, this creed that you just read, this Bible you profess belief in, this Jesus you sing songs to. You are charged to do something with this knowledge. You are charged to do something with the grace that you have been given, with the faith that you have to be active in bringing about the reconciliation of people. The gospel teaches us that we are broken. It teaches us that before we look to condemn others when something like what happens this week happens, before we look to condemn others, the gospel says we look inside our hearts. We recognize that the acts that have been committed physically have already been committed spiritually in our soul. That we have experienced that hatred and at times been gluttons to it and indulged in it. That the anger that drives people to do things that we are appalled at exists in us. It is the ultimate leveling ground. Jesus said something like this, before you look to the speck in someone else's eye, 
address the log in your own eye. I am not saying that you don't address the speck in someone else's eye. I'm not saying we sit back. But I'm saying that the gospel says, first, we look in. We remember that we are unjust. That we are hateful. That even if you have a hard time relating with that thought, that each of us has certainly caused an affront to Almighty God. And we have hated Him. And we have cast Him aside. And we have been unjustly angry toward Him. So if you have a hard time seeing how you've been like that to other people, at least come to the point where you can see that you have been that way toward God. The one who is for you, I have been against. The one who is for me, I have been against. This is where we start. We accuse ourselves. You see that? You become your accuser. And if you don't, the Holy Spirit will do it for you. Or maybe your spouse will do it for you or your friend. But be careful if everyone around you is lifting you up and not accusing you. Be careful if you have not accused yourself first. But listen, after I drove your chin farther into your chest again, you were expecting hope next. No, further. The gospel teaches us that we're broken, that we're guilty, and we deserve death. But the accuser, you, you just accused yourself, is silenced in the resurrection. Praise God. After the accusation comes, it is silenced. Do not stay in the accusation. Silence it with the resurrection. Remind yourself of Romans 8.33. Who can condemn? No one because of Jesus. It is only then that we rid ourselves of self-righteousness. Because do you know what happens if we never accuse ourselves? Then we never needed to be accused. Then we think that everyone else is wrong, but we are right. I know you haven't seen anyone or heard anyone acting like that this week. If you don't spend time accusing yourself, you will be lost in a cycle of self-righteousness where you are the only one with the answer, the only one worth listening to. Let's move on. Let's lift from here. This motivates us, right? When we, when we're, when we rem- remember that the accuser is silenced, this motivates us. Christ has become our vindication. To not send, it, it, it motivates us to not sit impassioned behind our Facebook posts and steaming about it over conversations at work or dinner. Because our accuser has been silenced by the resurrection, we must display the love of Jesus in bold ways to our neighbors, to our enemies. We must pray. Not simply think of the victims or the perpetrators. That's why Angela prayed for them by name. I fear that many of us have used a hashtag or told others that I would pray for them, but if you're like me, maybe you didn't spend that much time actually in prayer for them. There is a difference between thinking about someone and praying for them. You have joined together with your church in prayer for them tonight, and I encourage you now, and the, the victory 
of the resurrection charges you to love in bold ways. And that, that does mean to pray. That we must be a refreshing and encouraging voice in the rebuilding of what is destroyed when racial tensions flare. That we must be, you hear that? A refreshing and encouraging voice in the rebuilding of what is destroyed when racial tensions flare. Your coworkers and your friends and my family and everyone in our sphere of influence should be looking to you not because you have the best things to say or the most convincing arguments, because you're the only one that has hope. Because you're the only one that provides any type of real, lasting encouragement and love when all they can find everywhere else is despair and hopelessness and longing and want and want and want and turmoil. They can look to you and they can find what Jesus gives, a rest, just a peace that passes their understanding. They cannot figure out why it's peaceful to be with you. And that happens, church, when we understand the accuser is silenced. You don't have to have self-righteousness. You can boldly say that you have prejudice in your heart. You can confess, even to your non-Christian friends, that you have racism in your heart. You can confess that you sin in your anger. Even when what you're angry about could be considered righteous anger, but that oftentimes you give in and indulge in that anger. You can confess those things, and then you can bring them to the hope you have in the victory. Believing the resurrection means your accuser is silenced. Thirdly, it means that Jesus is your intercessor. Intercession prayer is praying to God on behalf of others. It's what I encourage you to be faithful to do, to your word. When you tell someone you will pray for them, I encourage you to challenge yourself to actually do that, to pray for them. That's called interceding on their behalf. It's different than just simply, like I said earlier, saying, uh, I will pray for you, or just thinking of someone. But it's intentionally going before God, asking for their healing, asking for defense on their behalf, asking for their blessing. In, in the kingdom of God, we sinners, saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus and his resurrection, have the perfect high priest who is forever interceding on our behalf. It says it right there in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. <clears throat> I preemptively read it a minute ago. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for you. Did you know that Christ, Jesus Christ, is praying for you to God? In fact, if you'd like to picture it, you could, you could picture it kind of like on this stained glass window or like the song that we sang earlier when Jesus was seated at the right hand of God. That Jesus is there, seated, comfortable, not anxious, resting, knowing that the work is being accomplished just inside of God's will. And he is interceding on your behalf. 
forever. There's not a moment when Jesus is not interceding for you. I know oftentimes when we fall into temptation and into sin, that we can begin to think that when that happens, God has some sort of disappointed countenance, like a father who's disappointed in their child. Did your dad ever say to you, I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Your grandma or your grandpa ever say that to you? That's the worst. It was, it was worse than anger, right? Because you knew you, you had let them down. And that trained me, I think, to, to think some, of God, the Father, somewhat like that. That he was just disappointed when I sinned. This is not how it is, church. Jesus is forever interceding on your behalf. The blood of Jesus, the Bible teaches. If that freaks you out, we'll talk about it in communion. It shouldn't freak you out that much. Yeah, but it's really great how the blood of Jesus covers your sin. That was the cross last week. It covers your sin. When God looks at you, regardless of whether you just sinned or you just had a great victory of faithfulness, he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees spotless, sinless, only son, lamb of God, Jesus. Because Jesus is forever interceding on your behalf. Fourthly, and finally, you, uh, believing the resurrection, when you believe those words, on the third day, Christ, on the third day, he rose again. That is believing that you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. It's the part of the passage that Lindsay did not read a moment ago. I'll read it for you now. Romans chapter 8, verse 36 and following. No. He's answering all those questions. Who can condemn? Who will accuse? Those questions from earlier that we got all the points from. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Jesus. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You, believing in the resurrection, are believing those words, that you are more than a conqueror, that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor angels or rulers means the highest in the spirit, the highest on earth. Nothing, no one, and he felt like maybe some people would say, but you forgot to say, you know, my crazy boss. So he said, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How? Why, you say? Why can nothing separate? Because in the resurrection, you have been given victory. In fact, victory isn't even the right word. Paul says, more than conquerors. A conqueror is someone who's finished with their work. But listen, Paul knew how it was. We think of conquerors, and we can see throughout history how someone has conquered and held power for a while until someone else reconquers. So he puts the issue to rest, and he says, 
in this, that, I'm not talking about we're a conqueror until someone else comes and, and conquers Jesus. You are more than conquerors. Nothing in creation can separate you from the love of, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because more than die for you, he rose again. More than that, he rose again. If you leave with anything on your lips tonight, I pray that you would be encouraged by that phrase. Repeat that to yourself. More than that, he rose again. Christ is enough for you. Why? Because more than die for you, he rose. He has given you victory. And in that victory, you are more than a conqueror. In that victory, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. In that victory, your accusers have been silenced. And it's only, only through that that you have anything to offer for an unjust world. And in that victory, remember that God is for you. And church, let me ask you a rhetorical question. If God is for you, who can be against you? We want you to be agents of reconciliation in Astoria, in your buildings where you work, in your families, in a time of confusion and chaos and turmoil. We lament together. We grieve with victims and their families. But we're not confused. You don't have to be confused. In your righteous anger, don't indulge. The enemy would love nothing less than to turn a lot of Christians' righteous anger at injustice that we see throughout all the world. We're so, we're so rightfully so America-focused right now, we may have forgotten about the tens of thousands of people who are victims of injustice around the world every day, who so many in our church have traveled far and wide to Greece to serve. Okay, we have to remember that the only way we have anything to offer is if we silence, we, uh, we remember that the accuser is silenced. He would like nothing less than to silence you. Another Greece mission trip is going in August, I think, or September to work with refugees. He would love nothing, nothing more than to silence that. You know why? Because that's the third one. People in our church are passionate now that may have been apathetic before. He wants to silence it. And with these murders, with this violence, with the injustice you have in your own heart, the enemy would love nothing more than to silence you. No. Just be angry. You're righteous in your anger. Be angry. Spew it. But be careful. Be careful that you don't listen to that voice. 
lest we, as a people, begin spewing hate out of our mouths in the same way that we are unhappy others spew hate with their actions. Church, be cautious in how you speak about these things with your unbelieving friends. Do not think for a second that they are not looking to you. Understand that the Holy Spirit is God over them and that he is drawing them to himself and he wants to use your handling of things like this that they're confused about. Submit yourself to the victory that you have. Silence the self-righteousness and be a beacon of hope and light in a hopeless and a dark world. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it seems as though the point has been belabored <laughs> that we know you, ra- you, you, rose, you rose from the dead. We get it. God, I pray that tonight we have been reminded that that resurrection is so impactful for how we actually live and move and have our being that it defines our very identity, that the words of our mouth, the thoughts, the feelings of our mind and our heart should be controlled by the victory that is given to us in the resurrection. God, break us so that we may only be found whole in you, that we could look to no one else for satisfaction, to no one else for healing, that we would look only to you. Thank you that the resurrection has given us a great victory and that we are more than conquerors. I pray that we would live in that truth and others would see and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.